All right. Bless them, Lord. <laughs> New adventure, yep, with the kids. All right, so let's talk about this story, okay? We're going to stay right here in Genesis 15 tonight. And I don't think you can find a more crucial passage in the whole Bible than this one. I really don't. Um, you could probably make a case. There's lots of them in there that you could make a case for, like the crucifixion, the resurrection chapters. Obviously, those are very important. But in a way, this one might even be more crucial because I don't think you can really even understand the crucifixion if you don't understand this story of what God is doing with Abraham. This is the covenant-cutting ceremony, is what they called it, covenant-cutting ceremony between God and Abraham, where the covenant of grace first gets given to humanity. Um, it's called covenant-cutting. If you look down in verse, um, well, where is it at? Verse 18, if you'll see that, almost at the end of the passage where it says, on that day the Lord made a covenant. It literally says in Hebrew, on that day the Lord cut a covenant with Abraham. We use that a little bit today, too, like when we say we cut a deal with someone. You know, you cut a deal. Uh, they used to use it back then because when you made a covenant with someone, you usually killed an animal as a part of the ceremony, which we're going to see tonight in this story. And so they called it cutting a covenant, like we say, cut a deal. God does that for Abraham here. Even though he had already been promising Abraham things, he had been working with Abraham, this was where he made it official. And in a way, if you don't understand the official character of, of our relationship with God, like what we call the covenant of grace, then you really, you probably won't understand the full beauty of the cross or the full beauty of the life of Jesus or the full beauty of the resurrection or the church or anything else. Most crucial passage in the Bible. Y'all want to hear about it? Three things today about the covenant of grace. If you'll look at your bulletin. And this really just follows the story in order. So we're going to go through the story part by part. In verses 1 to 5, we see the promise of the covenant. In verses 6 to 16, we have the faith of the covenant described. And then in verses 17 to 21, we have the grace of the covenant described. The promise of the covenant, the faith that Abraham has, and then the grace of the covenant. All right, let's start with the promise. Um, what does God promise to Abraham here? Well, it's very obvious, even in that first line there of chapter 15, that Abraham needs reassurance in his life at this particular moment. Uh, have you ever thought, I mean, have you ever had a time in your life where you needed reassurance? Can somebody give me an example? When's the time in your life you needed reassurance? Paying off debt. What kind of reassurance did you need? Uh, that the step to stop the bleeding and shift in what we were doing was actually going to eventually pay off. That's right. So maybe you looked at the statement and, wow, we've paid it down a lot, a, a half this year. And that's a reassuring thing to look at that piece of paper, especially when you get the paper that says paid. <laughs> that's a real reassuring, right? What's another time you needed reassurance? Wedding. Wedding. What did you need, Ed? Confidence. Confidence. I was doing the right thing. Yeah. Is she going to say, I do? <laughs> were, were, were you sure that she was going to say that? 
Yeah, you felt free. <laughs> yeah, hopefully you're sure going in, but you probably needed reassurance, you know. What'd you say? <laughs> right, yeah, that, there's the question, right? You should ask your spouse from time to time, if I asked you to marry me today, would you say yes? Yeah, but be prepared when you ask that question uh, for potentially a, a uh, tough conversation. But yes, you, you always need reassurance all the time for many different things. Uh, God knows this about humans. And so God in the covenant works to give the kind of promises that he knows are going to reassure his people at just the right times. Uh, there in verse 1 it says, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abraham. Now, after what things? After these things, what are these things? It's what Tim took us through last week. Uh, remember that? The war that Abraham had to fight to rescue his knucklehead nephew Lot, who he always has to bail out at this point. And at the end of that fight, which Abraham won, by the way, which is a huge thing, the king of Sodom came out and offered him riches. And Abraham refused the riches. Melchizedek came out and gave him bread and wine, which is short of riches, but still gave him the blessing of God, which is what Abraham, by this point in his life, knew he really needed more than riches. And yet, you can imagine, if you've just turned down the jackpot from the king of Sodom, do you need reassurance? I mean, you just left on the table a huge fortune that you could have had. He offered it to you because you had blessed him. It, you would have earned it fair and square because it was your little army that helped the king of Sodom win the battle. And yet you left that on the table because you believe that's what God was telling you to do. Well, notice the reassurance that God brings to Abraham in this critical moment. Look at what he says. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. How do you think that hit with Abraham? Just what he needed. How so? Right? Right, exactly. So it's on both sides. The security, I'm your shield. The prosperity, I will give you a very great reward. In fact, notice the emphasis, I am your shield. My, me personally am your shield. And actually, in that second phrase too, does anybody have an NIV or a King James version on them at the moment? Either one, NIV or King James. Nobody? Everybody's got a phone. And you got every translation ever written on your phone if you'll pull it up. Well, if you were to look up those, and you can, but you don't have to, but if you were in the King James and in the NIV, it says it's slightly different. It says, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, and also I am your very great reward. It makes both of them personal. Isn't that amazing? Uh, and you know, the reason why the ESV translates it this way, I think, is because the, the way the phrase, it, it can go either way, basically, in Hebrew. I mean, it can either be one or the other. It's not explicit which one it is. 
Uh, I think maybe the ESV translators thought those, the King James and the NIV had taken too much liberty in reading in the I am your great reward part. But I'm not sure about that because, after all, the whole phrase starts with I am. I am your shield. And then it just says your very great reward. So, yeah, I think it makes a whole lot of sense the way they, they translated in those other translations that God is actually coming to Abraham saying, Abraham, it's okay if you left a bunch of stuff on the table. I am yours. I'm here to give you myself, both as protector and as very great reward. But even if the ESV is right, still the same thing is there. It's God coming very personally to pledge himself to Abraham at the point of his need. Now, I want you to understand that because that is the essence of the covenant of grace. It's God personally pledging himself for the good of his people. God personally pledging himself for the good of his people. It's not just that God promises his people stuff in the covenant. Even though he's going to promise Abraham children and land, it's not about the children and the land primarily. Before he ever gets to the children and the land, God says, I am your reward. I am your shield. God is giving himself. God wants a personal communion with people where God gives himself to his people and then his people, because God has given himself to them, give themselves back to God. Right? This back and forth. God to his people, his people back to God. Intensely personal what God is doing with Abraham. It's really the only thing that could possibly reassure Abraham for the long term. And y'all, it's the only thing that can reassure us in life too. To know that we have a God in heaven and that God is our father and he's pledged himself to us. Um, it doesn't matter how much land you get, it can't replace that. It doesn't matter how much money you get, it can't replace that. Isn't that right? Uh, nothing can replace having the living God as your God and you as his people, which is the essence of the covenant. I am your God and you are my people. Now, Abraham <clears throat> has to be reassured even further because notice what Abraham says there at, in verse 2. Notice, what does he say? I have no child, though, Lord. Uh, yeah, what will you give me? Uh, which is a very interesting thing. I mean, I think Abraham is, again, thinking like we do. He's thinking very practically, tangibly, earthbound. God says, I am your shield, I am your reward. And Abraham's like, but how is it going to happen because I don't have a child? Remember, Abraham already knows God promised him children more than the stars of the sky and more than the sand on the seashore, and you're going to get a land, and through you all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Abraham says, I don't understand. How is this going to happen? Well, I love this because God does not simply you know, rebuke Abraham. Instead, what God does is he gives Abraham yet one more assurance, one more personal assurance, starting in verse 4. What does he have Abraham do? This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And God did what? He brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. So shall your offspring be. These first verses really are establishing the essence of 
of Abraham's relationship with God and also the essence of our relationship with God. It's that God has given us his word. He's given us his promise. He's given us all the things in that word and promise that we could possibly need to reassure us when we doubt, to reassure us when we have questions. And when we take God up on that promise, when we believe it, massive changes begin to happen in our lives. That's the covenant of grace. This is why I say, you know, if you don't know this, if you didn't know that God came to Abraham and made this promise, you really wouldn't fully understand Jesus. This is a tough question, but I'll ask you. Maybe you can think about it. Can you give me an example of a story in the life of Christ that reminds you of this, these first five verses, that it would be hard to understand if you didn't know this story? Tough question, but I I believe in you. It can be any story about the life, the birth, the death. Yeah, what Joseph went through. That's beautiful, right? Um, he's being promised a miracle child. From a marriage perspective, it created a crisis in his not even fully consummated marriage. Already a crisis. And yet... The angel comes and does the same, very, same exact thing that he did with Abraham. He reassures him. Beautiful. Same with Mary. How shall, I, how shall this be since I have not known a man, she says. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you. This is, and this is just the pattern of life, according to the Bible. This is the pattern of relating to God. God makes a promises, and we are to keep, we're to take him at his word. And within the promises, there is all kinds of ways that God is working always to address us when we doubt it. Uh, The reason for that is because exactly what God says there in verse 1 again. What God is promising ultimately is not a thing. It's not an experience. It's not this or that. It's it's himself. I am your shield. I, I am your very great reward. And Ask me any question you want to ask me and I'll reassure you. I'll take you outside. I'll show you the stars. By the way, the stars that I made, and I know how many there are, but I know you can't count them. But yet I'm going to ask you to try because it's going to make you feel small, but in a good way, so that you'll understand I'm able to do things that are even marvelous, wonderful, things that you could never even imagine on your own. That's what a covenant is. It's a word-based, personal, where God himself is the blessing and where God himself is the miracle-working power behind delivering that blessing. Word-based blessing of God himself, where God himself is the one who works it out. Now I wonder, how do you think about your relationship with God? Do you think about it that way? Um, and, And no, we may not have the same kind of direct interactions with God that Abraham did, but I think the Bible would actually say we've got better. It wouldn't say we have worse But better. How so? We do. We do. And not only that, but what God promised Abraham hadn't happened yet. 
we actually have already fulfilled to us what God promised Abraham 4,000 years ago. You say, well, I don't have an audible voice. That's what it would take. I don't know. I don't know if that's really what it would take to put us over the edge or not. There were plenty of people who heard audible voices of God and didn't believe. It didn't help them. Um, yes, sir, Alex. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't help them. Yeah, because, yeah, the problem is deeper than that. It's a faith, it's a trust problem, which, which gets to the heart of the next point, which is the faith of the covenant. Because the covenant's word-based, promise-based, because it's personal, here's God saying, I want to be yours and I want you to be mine. What it, the one thing it requires of us, the one thing it requires is faith. But when that faith is given, life-changing things begin to happen. So look, look there at chapter 15, verse 6, which has a very good case for it to be the most important verse in the Bible. 15.6. Good case. Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Now, why do I say that's the most important verse in the Bible? Well, because Paul thought it was. Uh, numerous times in Galatians and Romans, he quotes that verse to prove that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus alone. Because he says, look at here, look what happened with Abraham. Abraham hadn't, hadn't done anything to earn this. God simply came and gave him an astonishing promise. And Abraham simply took God at his word. And the moment God took him, that Abraham took God at his word, God counted Abraham, or he declared Abraham to be righteous and acceptable in his sight. Perfectly acceptable to him. Now, that word counted as righteous, it's actually a legal phrase. It's like a courtroom phrase. It means to declare innocent, to pass a verdict that that person is righteous. That person lives up to the standard and should not be punished. Now, normally, what would go before being declared righteous? It wouldn't be he believed, it would be what? He proved himself, and God declared him righteous. He lived a perfect life, and God declared him righteous. Now, that would be the what you would expect. Uh, in fact, if it's God doing the proving, God doing the judging, you would expect it had to be absolutely perfect righteousness. Like Abraham had done everything inside and out down to the very last detail, and therefore God counted him as righteous. But what Paul says is the most astonishing thing is that Abraham hadn't done all those things. All he did was simply believe God's word, and because he believed God's word, the verdict came. The verdict that he didn't deserve. Paul says the gospel was preached to Abraham right here. The gospel of Jesus. And Abraham believed that gospel, and he was justified by faith. Just the way believers today are. Which is, this is what we mean by justified by faith. It means you are 100% forgiven of all your sin. Counted 100% righteous as if you've obeyed every one of God's commandments. Only because of your faith in what Jesus did, not in what you do. That's justification by faith. Abraham had it. All the believers of the Old Testament have it, and now we have it. We have it better because we now know what to call that, what to call the check that God wrote to finance that. 
and we call him Jesus. That's the check God wrote to finance justification. In the Old Testament, they didn't know. They were like, well, I bring a goat, I bring a cow, and I know God does something in there to balance the scale, but I don't know exactly how he does it. I just know that he does it, and he's going to one day show me. We now know that name is Jesus, who bore the penalty of sin and perfectly obeyed so that when a person takes God at his word, verdict passed. Past, present, future sin, forgiven. The righteousness of perfect obedience, granted. The doors to the kingdom of heaven, opened, never to be shut again. Wow. This happened to Abraham. This is why uh, Paul calls him the father of all believers. Uh, This is why Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw my day and was glad when he saw it. Jesus is actually saying, Abraham saw me ahead of time. And he bursted out in joy. Wow. And yet, notice, after Abraham's justified by faith, his faith is still mm, sort of iffy. And still needs yet more reassurance, which God still gives him. What does Abraham say right after he's justified? Verse 7. Or what first God says, I am the God who brought you out. Then in verse 8, Abraham says something. What does he say? How do I know? How do I know? Think about that question. How do I know? Have you ever asked that question? To God or to anybody? How, do I, how, am, how am I supposed to know that? What is that question really grasping for? Yeah, it could be personal, like, mm, I don't know about you. You might not be telling me the truth. Maybe. Could be that, but it could also be Needing proof? Yeah, yeah. Like, that's right. Yeah. So, so it could be, yeah, what Drew's saying, it could be Abraham still has some doubt in God. It's possible. It could also be Abraham's personal inner reassurance of the path that God is taking him on is still not quite where he wants it to be. Which are two kind of different things, right? Um, you can trust someone who's talking to you perfectly, but yet you can still have doubts about what they're telling you. Not because you distrust them, but because why? You hadn't seen it. Yeah, I mean, this is just the way we tend to be, right? Uh, until I see it, it's really just hard to believe it, like, especially something like this. Um, God is promising Abraham children the num- you know the count their number the same as the number of the stars, and he has zero at this point. And by the way, he's a hundred years old. So yeah, I mean, God is telling him something crazy that Abraham, just like me and you, Abraham is fishing for some tangible thing that he can hold on to to say, all right, I'm I'm walking in the right path. And maybe there's a part of him that says, God, I'm just not sure if, if I can trust you. But it could just be, this is really hard. You're asking me to believe a hard thing here, God. You're going to have to give me something on paper. 
Um, when you go to buy a house, for example, or someone goes to buy a house from you, you, you don't really breathe a sigh of relief until what? It's closed. Until then, you're kind of like, I don't know, is this going to happen? And I've seen them, I've seen them fall apart towards, at the very end, have, haven't you? I've heard of it and actually have experienced it ourselves uh, once on the very day of closing. And uh, that, that's, that's nerve-wracking. But once it's closed, that's what's great about that word, closed. <laughs> once it's closed, what? You know it. And I think that's what Abraham's asking for. God, how will I know is a question of, God, can we get this somehow in writing? Mm. Mm-hmm. Say more about that. Yeah. God's working this out and thinking, oh, could it, could it be? And, you know, that happens in other people's lives in the Bible, that idea of God's promised us at some point, and you don't even know the direction you were meant to go to get there. Yeah. So could it be a question of participation or responsibility? Like he doubts his ability to yeah. participate. Yeah. Abs- oh, I think that's for sure. I mean, he... Paul says in Romans 4, Abraham looked at his body, which was as good as dead. And he thought, okay, but I hope in you, God. I mean, you know, so yes, I think that's definitely a huge part of it. Which is kind of like closing, too. You know, like when you close something, it assures you not only of the other person's side, but it assures you that your side is going to go through, too, right? Whatever that is you're exchanging. And so he's trying to get it down on paper, like, let's, God, let's exchange signatures here. And so this is where God moves into the cutting of the covenant ceremony. This is the way they close the deal in the ancient Near East. Every time they cut a covenant using the exact same ceremony that God uses here. Uh, If you'll notice verse 9, God says to Abraham, bring me a uh, heifer, three years old. (laughs) Uh, To us, that's weird, isn't it? Like, God, how will I know? Oh, bring me a heifer and you will know. Uh, bring me a goat, and you will know. All, of, all the things he lists there. What is it? A heifer, a, a goat, a ram, <laughs> uh, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. It's, it's almost like the 12 days of Christmas. Um, and, and today we're wondering, what in the world does this have to do with assurance? And yet, to Abraham, you notice he doesn't say anything like, what are you talking about, Lord? He knows exactly what God is talking about, and he goes and does it and brings it right back. Because this is something probably Abraham had already done with other people. This is the way they signed deals. They took these animals, they sacrificed them, they split them down the middle, they put one half of the animal on one side, the other half of the animal on the other in an aisle to make an aisle just like this. And the two people that were making the covenant would link arms together and walk in between the pieces while they exchanged the oath. And they would say something like, if I don't keep the end of my deal, may I be like these animals. And the other would say, if I don't keep my end of the deal, may I be like these animals. And once they got done walking through that bloody aisleway, they would have the confidence on pain of death that this thing was closed. 
And God graciously grants that to Abraham. He doesn't. We'll get there in a second. Absolutely. That's a huge thing that happens as Abraham falls asleep in just a minute. But for now, I mean, can you just think about how reassuring to faith this is? And God still does the same thing for us today. You say, well, what do you mean? God still has given us covenant-cutting actions that we participate in that are supposed to remind us of the closing of the deal between us and him. Can you think of what they are? Given by Jesus Christ himself, communion, and baptism. We call them sacraments. Uh, Jesus gave them both. And in both, he says, uh, these are about my covenant. These are about reassuring your heart that my promises are real. Uh, Baptism and communion are not mainly about us saying, God, we mean business. They're mainly about God saying, I mean business. That they're a reminder to the human heart who is baptized and who comes to communion that God is going to keep the promises that he has made. And he, he proved it because not only did he split animals, he split his son in half. Because it ain't water that washes your you know, sins away, and it's not bread and wine that nourishes your soul to everlasting life, of course. It's the body of Jesus broken open that washes you and that nourishes you to everlasting life. And yet those are tangible actions that faith can take a hold of. Every time you use them in a faithful way, you can take a hold of those And you can have assurance from God. This is the way God has always dealt. Every single covenant God has ever made came with a sign, came with a seal, came with a sacrament, a cutting of the covenant so that the people of God could have continual reassurance in their life that God means business. Uh, And what, what God wants for Abraham is that the faith that he had which justified him would also become the faith that grows over time and would be the faith that sanctifies him. That as Abraham gets along with God, his faith would deepen, and as his faith deepens, he would himself be changed and become more obedient and more holy because he, was, he trusted God more. He had gone through more experiences with God. He'd learned more about God, and he'd entrusted more of his heart and his life to God. That's what God wants for us. And so that's why, you know, I say it all the time, but... You really can't follow God alone, you know. You, you, you can't be a lone ranger believer. God means you to be a part of the church. And the reason for that is here's where faith becomes tangible. And if you don't ever let your faith commitment or God's promises become tangible in your life, then you shouldn't be surprised if you're doubting all the time. Because you're spurning the one way <laughs> that God has said you can put your hands on it. It's really important to God, yes. <clears throat> well, um, so the probably the significance of that is the simple fact that the so it was either that the birds were meant to be seen almost like as a a thank offering after the offering of of uh, sacrifice. So in the Old Testament, when you sacrificed an animal and you offered it, it was for atonement, and then you followed it with a thank offering, which was to give thanks for the atonement. 
And it could be that the birds were meant to be seen as separate from the animals, like they were cut in half as the sacrifice of atonement or of pain of death swearing, and the birds were there to be like a token of the gratitude of the two parties, maybe. The other thing could be just the practicality of their small. And, um, you know, you, you can split a bird open, but, it, you know, it, it is a, it's, it's a little difficult to fully get a clean. <laughs> I don't want to get too much into dressing animals, but it's a little harder, especially a uh, turtle dove. That's a tough one to get a clean split on that. It's a smaller fowl. <laughs> So, yeah, Ben? Um, back in chapter 13, mm-hmm. God speaks with the voice. Yes. Here he shows up in a vision. Right. And then we see later he shows up in person. And so just what you're yeah. talking about, there is that mm-hmm. progression. Yeah. As, as his faith builds, God also makes that more tangible. Yep. He yep. shows himself here. Exactly. Same, same with us. The more we believe, the more God reveals the more we walk for, and are faithful to him, the more of himself he makes known to us. Like Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And I will come to you and show myself to you. And um, there, there are some things you can't know about God until you obey him. He just won't show them to you. You'll never know it until you obey him. Um, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Um, or as Mark Twain said, there are some things that you learn by grabbing a cat by the tail that you can learn in no other way. And uh, with God, there are some things that, unless you grab a hold of God, you will not know that about. You just not, will not know him. Uh, he's a personal God. He's not a theoretical God. And so he won't be known by just theory. He will be known by practice. And um, Abraham learns that, as, as do all the saints in the Bible. So let's go to the last part there, the grace. And this is what Alex brought up. Uh, so beautifully there. In verses 17 to 21, the end of the ceremony happens. Um, so Abraham falls asleep because, I mean, think about the awkwardness. In the past when Abraham had done this, if in fact he had done it, which I think he had, um, it would be over pretty quick. You kill the animals and the two guys walk through and boom, closed. Go home, have a meal and celebrate. Here Abraham s- splits it. And waits because the other party making a covenant with him is invisible. It's God, you know. So he's kind of like, okay, what's going to happen now? He's twiddling his thumbs. Things drag out until it starts to get dark. Birds are coming down to eat the, the, the sacrifices. He's having to beat the birds away. He gets wore out by this. That he just starts to fall asleep. He has a nightmare as he falls asleep. He gets awakened in the midst of his nightmare, and then in verse 17, it says, When it was dark, fully dark, behold, look, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Smoking firepot, flaming torch. I don't know what, you, what your mind imagines when you hear that, but, well, it's like the pillar of fire and cloud in the wilderness, right? It's, just a, it's, it's almost like a... When you open up a grill and see the flame, that's what it's like in my mind. Like it's just a ball of flame and coal and smoking, but yet on fire. And it just went straight down the middle of the bloody aisle. And Abraham just stood there and watched it. 
And God immediately says, I have made a covenant with you. I cut a covenant with you. To your offspring I will give this land, the land of all these people that currently live there. And to your offspring I give the land. So isn't that cool? Usually both parties have to walk through the pieces. Why? Because both parties are perfectly capable of breaking the covenant. And if the covenant's going to be closed and cut, both have to say, if I do, let me be killed. But here, the only one that passes between the pieces is the only one in it that can't break the covenant and won't. The one that actually is capable of it and actually will break the covenant stays standing watching it. This is why I say it's the most crucial passage in the Bible. Because it is... It's an illustration of the cross. How so? Somebody explain it. That's right. Only Jesus. Mm-hmm. And it makes a point of that, doesn't it? Like I, I, I always remember every year when, we, when I read through the Gospels, it sticks out to me that each of the Gospel writers is clear to say they left him. They left him. They left him. They left him. Meaning the disciples. It was only Jesus that passed between the pieces by himself. And they fell asleep. They sure did. Yeah, they fell asleep. Yeah. Why? I mean, why does God do this? Why did Jesus go to the cross alone? He's just. Yep. So what God was saying as he went through the pieces to Abraham was, Abraham, if I break the covenant, I'll be killed, just like these animals. But he was also saying, Abraham, if you break the covenant, or if your descendants break the covenant, you stay there. Don't walk through the pieces, because that would mean you would be killed. I will walk through for you, too. If you break it, I'll be killed, too. And so when Jesus goes to the cross alone, this was God doing what he promised Abraham he would do. It was God taking the penalty of the covenant that every single one of us earned because we broke our side of the deal. We did not keep our end of the bargain, and yet God paid both sides. He paid his side, and he paid our side. Covenant of grace. That's the reason why... When a person like me and you simply believes in the Lord, it is counted to us as righteousness. We're accepted. We're forgiven. That's why when we say to God, God, how will I know? God continually gives us reassurance of our faith through his word, through his spirit, through the sacraments, through prayer. He continues to assure the heart. That's why he does that. Grace. So that the faith we had at the beginning, which justified us, would become the faith that is deepening and continuing to sanctify us more and more every single day. Before this point, you could say God had started the covenant with Abraham, but you couldn't say it had been closed yet. The deal was still kind of out there. Maybe there was a contract, but there had been no closing. On this day, it closed. And according to Scripture, it wasn't just this covenant just between God and Abraham that closed that day. It was the covenant between God and his son, Jesus Christ. 
of which you and I and every believer in all the world that ever will live and ever has lived was closed through the cross. And so a Christian is a person who has all the reason in the world for confidence and assurance. Hmm? Don't you think? The gospel is not, hey, come be good so that God will close the deal with you. Or hey, you know, work together with God to close the deal. You do your part, he does his part. Pull yourself up, he'll meet you halfway. It's not none of that. The gospel is closed for all his people. Closed forever. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will know that you are his people. Can you think of a more crucial story in the whole Bible? Hmm? I don't know. I, I can't think of one. Powerful. Uh, I, I revisit this story a lot. And uh, if you'll turn over to Romans 4, actually, I won't read it to you, but <clears throat> I, want, I just want to show you a couple things so that you can go read it later, but... Uh, Romans 4 is Paul's little commentary on Genesis 15. It's his commentary. And I just want to read to you verses 22 to 25 before we pray and close. It says this, That is why Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Hmm? Wow. Go read Romans 4. It's, it's a lot of good stuff in there. <clears throat> 